The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. in the book of Philippians in the New Testament, Paul's letter to a church in a tiny place called Philippi where some of his best friends in the Gospels dwelt. We have finished the epic second chapter with many mountain peaks in it, and we move on now to chapter 3 of Philippians. I will read verses 1 through 9 of this God's holy word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. But watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Our Father, we ask you to consecrate this word to our understanding by the agency of that same Holy Spirit who inspired the one who wrote, Bring us alive. Give us rejoicing in this, your truth, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, you've heard the reports, the news from the San Jose mine in the Atacama Desert of Chile. The breakthrough just the other day of the drilling of the tunnel to find a way of escape for 33 Chilean miners trapped now for more than two months. Round-the-clock efforts by an international team have been successful thus far at bringing a path of escape to them much sooner even than was anticipated. And in a few days, we're told we should see those miners emerge to the light of day. 
They're going to be extricated as each in turn squeezes into a 21 and a half inch wide steel capsule. I told my wife I would be sunk. <laughs> there is no way. You measure it. Wives, measure your husband's shoulders side to side and see if they'd fit. 21 and a half, boy, that's really claustrophobic. That's worse than the worst closed MRI, let me tell you. As they will be lifted upward by a cable and a winch in that capsule aptly named Phoenix as they arise from the earth. What a wonderful effort has undertaken this, and we certainly pray it's going to be a successful rescue for all these men. But let me be facetious for a minute and ask why in all the discussions and the efforts to see these people rescued, no one in the early stage when contact was first made with those men underground suggested one thing. I haven't heard anybody talk about it as a possibility. Why didn't the message go down to them of, okay, men, we're glad you're there. Great news to hear that you're all alive. Now, you're directly below us. Just come straight up. All you have to do, you're miners after all, just bore a hole and come straight up and you'll escape. You say, well, how ridiculous. First of all, they probably don't have the equipment they need to do that. The hydraulic drills, the specialty drills to drill a large enough. And, and even if they did, how do you drill straight up? Oh, what's that thing above my head? I always, I always forget that thing's there. How would they drill straight up? You say they couldn't possibly do it. What a silly demand. But I make that as a suggestion because I would say to you that trying a do-it-yourself escape without intervention from the world above is actually the physical equivalent of what nearly everybody in the world tries to do morally and spiritually. They decide they will accomplish their eternal salvation like eager moles burrowing straight up to find God, never guessing at the utter impossibility of the task. And tragically, so many never even know that the great King of Heaven long ago accomplished all the tunneling down that was needed to bring Him to our level, and to make a way of escape. Well, Philippians 3 does mark a bit of a new departure in this epistle with the same themes in view. Paul actually is returning as he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in Christ has been the theme of this epistle. And I would parenthetically remark on his first word there that Paul is uh, just like all preachers today. You notice that he says, finally, right? He's halfway through, just like a preacher. Finally, I want to tell you the same thing I've been telling you all along, and don't grow tired of it because you need to hear it. Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord, this Lord and Savior that he's been exalting so wonderfully in chapter 2. He's telling them in new ways now how Jesus is the wellspring of a true joy that comes from being rightly related to God. He's going to go into something here that will surprise us for a moment, a scathing attack on some people who say differently. 
He's going to illustrate in what seems like a very bold way from his own life the futility of tunneling up. And then he's going to affirm that there's one way of unique righteousness which redeems or saves a man or woman before the holy God. Nobody can tunnel upwards to God is the message of this passage. God in Christ has tunneled all the way to our level to rescue and to save. So our theme is this today, that righteousness before God comes solely from knowing Jesus Christ, knowing him by faith. On the final day when everything is revealed about you and you stand before the holy God, you need to be shielded in that day. And you will be if you know the righteousness that is not your own but is his put around you like a cloak. Possessing that righteousness and knowing that you're trusting in it today is a cause for the greatest possible rejoicing. So the first point of our text I undertake here today is in verses 2 and 3, where I'm saying that we are urged here by the apostle to rejoice in the Lord by means of firm rejection of works-based religion. Now, you know, if you've caught the tone of Philippians at all and know that this was Paul's letter to his best Christian friends, he was on good terms with them, he loved them affectionately, there were no great divisions or schisms going on that he had to rebuke in stern language. If you know all that and you've read this epistle to this point, verse 2 is really startling because all of a sudden there's a great sternness and sharpness. Paul almost growls as he says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Certainly he's talking about some very specific people who have had an effect even on this Philippian church. Now, we've mentioned this in other occasions when the Bible likens people to dogs. Today, of course, everybody, just about everybody, loves dogs, like the cute little furball that lives at our house. But that's not who's being talked about here at all. A dog in the first century was a near wild creature, much more like a coyote, lurking in the streets, running in packs, eating garbage, eating the remains of dead animals, what we would call roadkill. You didn't want to be around them. You didn't approach them. You didn't have anything to do with them. So if you call someone a dog, that's a biting insult. Now, we know enough about the background study of the New Testament to know who Paul was talking about here. Not one or two people alone, but a a whole party of individuals who opposed him in different places, and they were Jewish-born Christians like himself. He, too, was born into the tribe of Israel, but came to Christ. But these people were different in that they held the Old Testament and particularly the Levitical laws, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament in a tight grip. And they were particularly saying to any Gentile Christian, look, you can be a Christian like us, but you have to fulfill the terms of the Levitical law and the ceremonies just like us. And one of their biggest prime tests for Gentiles was the rite of circumcision. So they were saying to Gentile men, you want to be a Christian? Fine, be circumcised. Paul opposed that. The Jerusalem Council of Apostles opposed it. Look in Acts 15 where they had to have a meeting about this and have a decision to say, no, we're not going to require that. 
But these folks, called Judaizers as their nickname, were going around everywhere saying this. In other words, what counts is Christ plus a religious work, a religious ceremony. Paul rebukes this many places. The book of Galatians is one place where he's brutal in his his, uh, writing against them. And he comes to say, for example, in Galatians 3.15, what counts today is not the outward ritual, but a new creation, an inward creation. And so he's sarcastic and his, his venom is strong here when he says, I want you to avoid these flesh mutilators, he calls them. And evidently they had even had some kind of influence, even in this well-ordered congregation in Philippi. Religious rituals and symbols like circumcision had a validity because God gave them. They were for a particular time in the economy of God in the Bible. But their day is over. They belong to the day of expectation of Messiah. Messiah has come. The book of Hebrews is written almost entirely to tell us of those things that have passed away now that the fulfillment has come. And yet here were people saying the ritual is paramount. In fact, we can't even understand how you could know Christ without the ritual. And so these people represent to us any form of works-based religion. And don't you see why this is a religion without joy? It always is. Because it says, do this and do some more and do more and do more. And you never know when you've done enough. You never know when God is satisfied. You just keep on doing. And you're always feeling guilty. And you're always feeling like, I haven't made it yet. Paul is saying it's Christ plus nothing. No work of yours. Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone. That's the New Testament gospel. And in the Middle Ages, the church completely lost that as they started piling on more works of their own, not necessarily circumcision, but other religious works. And And we're always doing this, always slipping off and saying, if you would trust Jesus and do this, and present this kind of sacrifice or ritual. It was lost so severely in the church of the Middle Ages that it took the explosion of spiritual power called the Reformation in the 16th century to even bring the gospel back to the surface again. Paul said these works religion teachers actually assume they alone have a lock on God's Old Testament covenant blessing from Israel. He said they're wrong. They call themselves the circumcision, meaning it's us and nobody else. He said we, believers in Christ, are the circumcision. Look what he says. Who belongs to this covenant blessing? Verse 3, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, we have the blessing of Israel. All those covenant promises from God from of old. Galatians 3 says so eloquently that you are an Israelite. You are the child of Abraham if you trust in Christ. So let no work-based religion get in the way of a trust in him. Now moving on quickly to the second point, which is really the heart of the matter in verses 4 through 7. Here the apostle is inspired to say an additional thing, similar but a little different. Rejoice, he says, when your personal resume of works adds up to a total loss. I like to follow with interest sometimes all the things that are written today about how to create your 
what do they call it, the power resume? You know, the resume that's going to get you the job. It's going to grab the job interviewer by the throat and say, hire this person. How to present yourself on one and a half sheets of paper, one, one side is best, and get everything there that is absolutely positive about your background, your education, your experience, your skills, not too much, but enough, not negative, don't put failures in, only accomplishments, stretch them as far as you can, reasonably do, and of course, resume fraud is a big deal today. It happens all the time. You know, they think, well, most people don't go and check if I went to Harvard University, so I'll just put that down. And people are doing that all the time. Why? Because we want to inflate ourselves and present ourselves in the best possible way. Paul says, look, you want confidence in the flesh, you want good resumes, here, I'll show you mine. And he hands it over here in verses 4 through 6. This is Paul's resume. He says, look, in the groups that I moved among, the Israelites of Israelites, where I started out in life, my resume was the best. That sounds pretty boastful. And if this man was really just on an ego trip here, he's wrong. But he was pulling it out and saying, let's look at it. I had naturally all the best privileges that you would want to have. I had been circumcised the the Old Testament way at eight days of age. I was born of the race of Israel. I belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. I won't go into why, but there's a whole line of history that could be traced why the tribe of Benjamin was thought to be the most pure Israelite tribe. King Saul, for whom Paul was probably named, came from the tribe of Benjamin. And that was, you know, was special to be from Benjamin. I was a Hebrew among Hebrews. I was, he doesn't say this here directly, but that being a Hebrew among Hebrews probably in his mind had a little bit to do with the fact that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the great scholar, the Jewish scholar of the age in Jerusalem was Paul's teacher. And then he says, oh, more than that, I was a Pharisee. I try to think of a, an illustration for how to think of what a Pharisee really is. This came to mind. I was thinking about jewelers who, who cut diamonds. You know, there are people in the jewelry industry who do nothing but take rough diamonds and cut them in different shapes and get the facets. So I, I can't even imagine how this is done. You need a microscope. You need a big magnifier. You need incredible skills to just facet the diamond so that it will be shown in its perfection. Well, I bring that up because to me that's the way a Pharisee is in the way he lives towards the law. He has this scrupulous, meticulous way of faceting his life so that it exactly seems to fit the written law of God. Paul says, I was one of those. That's the way I lived. And in fact, I was so zealous, I hated Israel's enemy, enemies with a venom. You know how I persecuted the early church. I committed murder for the honor of God is what Paul is saying here. And then he says, as far as Israelite heritage was concerned, I was blameless. You couldn't have brought a fault against me. You know, I have a friend, a wonderful friend, who, whose resume in the evangelical Christian world is, it at least kind of reminds me of, of Paul's. And my friend would be embarrassed if I was using him, but he'll probably never hear about it, so I will use him. He's a brilliant man, one of the smartest men I've ever known. 
He's also one of the most personable. It's just wrong that somebody should have this many gifts. He's not only very smart, he's extremely personal, personable and great conversationalist, compassionate. He cares about people. He's now 44 years old. He's written more than 20 books. They're all valuable. I, I prize them all. He was born as the son of a famous scholar. He was educated at a, a choice college where evangelical faith was taught, and then a fine seminary, summa cum laude from both. Then he went to Oxford University. Now, if you don't know academia, Oxford is Mount Everest, okay? You can't have a doctorate from a more honored place in terms of American or or British thinking than Oxford. He finished his doctorate. He came back to the United States. He joined the staff of a church pastored by a man of international stature. And when that gentleman passed away very suddenly... This man became the pastor. And you would think, well, how do you follow such a great man? Well, guess what? The church grew. The church went forward. The church prospered. Some of you are already guessing. I'm talking about my good friend, Dr. Philip Riken, who just this summer became the president of Wheaton College, an honored place in the evangelical world. And, you know, they have a man... I just hope they know what they have. They will find out what they have. I admire him so deeply. It, you almost can't naturally like a man like Phil Riken. He's too talented. And yet, he's so humble that you can like him. And I think that's what, what Paul was saying here. You want my resume? Here it is. Am I not great? He was being facetious. But then he was going to tell you what I know my friend Phil Riken also would tell you, that all of that was nothing. It was absolutely nothing to be the smartest, to be the most accomplished, to have all these credentials. Both men would say what Paul said, speaking for them here. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider to be loss for the sake of Christ. We come then to the third and climactic point here that's made so well in verses 8 and 9. As Paul exhorts us this, rejoice in knowing Christ's alien righteousness by faith alone. Why do I call it alien? You say that word's not in the text. No, it isn't. It's a word theologians have used to talk about the righteousness of Christ, not because it's from outer space like you think of alien, but to remind you that it is not yours. It doesn't originate in you. It originates in God. Rejoice in knowing the alien righteousness of Christ by faith alone. Paul and my friend Phil and many others would say, you want to see my brilliant resume, so-called? It's nothing. It's a piece of paper. Paper disintegrates and it will disappear. Our NIV translation uses a very kind word in calling it rubbish. I must say that's not a strong enough word for Paul's original word. And his original word isn't nice. What Paul said, all that was worth, I'll say it the only way I can say it, excrement. That's what it was worth. 
Paul is saying, if I took my breeding, my education, my character, personality, achievements, works of philanthropy, it's like a bucket of something I dredged out of the city sewer and said, here, God, are you pleased with this? Nothing. I give you an imaginary situation. It couldn't happen, but just suppose. You got a new job, and and at your new job, they said, now, we don't hand you paychecks every two weeks. We have automatic deposit in the bank, so don't worry. Just give us your bank number, and your check will be deposited. So you start out the job. You're working for a few months. Everything seems to be going fine. One day, you get a notice from your bank. Please come in, sir. Your account is overdrawn by $25,000. You panic. What is this? How could this be possible? And you go in and and take them your stubs and things, and you say, I don't understand this. I couldn't possibly. Look, my checks have been deposited every two weeks. Look, here's the credits. Oh, no, wait a minute, says Mr. Bank Manager. You don't understand. No, we're not doing the math that way. These amounts that you're calling credits, we call debits. And every week when this came in, we have debited your account for that amount. And you owe us $25,000. You say, no, 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 no. Yes, 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 says the bank. Your gains are losses. Well, of course, that's not going to happen. And you say, don't be silly. But it's as though that had happened, Paul says. Everything that I thought was a credit on my account is, in fact, a liability. I think it was about 20 years ago that a man sat in my office whose marriage was in ruins at the time. His business was teetering on the brink because of his abuse of alcohol. His sons wouldn't speak to him. And many friends had turned their back on him. He was a mess. I remember this man, Jim, that was his real name, clasping his hands, sighing deeply, and I can almost quote his words. He said, Pastor, the sum total of my life's accomplishments to this moment seems to me to be a pretty big zero. How would you answer a man like that? I don't ask credit for any great wisdom, but I think the Lord gave me the right thing to say that day. I said something like this, Jim, you know what? You're actually very fortunate. You've come to a place in your life that many people never arrive at, although they need to, of understanding that every asset you thought you had is nothing. Every credit to your account is a liability. And it seems to me, and I did open the Scripture that day and show him this, that you're right where Paul was in Philippians 3. Everything that you thought was a gain is a loss. You're very fortunate, Jim, because now you have a chance to discover the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, whom Paul called my Lord. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament in all the writings of Paul where he said, my Lord. He called Jesus Lord many times, but only here did he call him my Lord. Maybe he wanted emphasis on that for our sake. You see, Jesus Christ will never be your chief joy and rejoicing. As Paul says, go ahead and rejoice, he might as well be whistling in the wind as far as you're concerned until you come to know 
that your personal resume is primarily an exercise in self-congratulation, and you've got to lay it down and say, God, I'm nothing. I'm a negative sum. I'm ready for Christ. I want to know Him. I want to be filled with a righteousness that isn't mine that will satisfy you on that judgment day when I'm going to be before you with that bucket of sewage in my hand to present for my life. I want His righteousness as a robe around my shoulders that you will look upon and say, welcome my son, welcome my daughter. How marvelous the gospel is, you see. It's that simple. Jesus alone could match what God required. He did it, and now he offers what he did as a free gift to those who will take it in simple trust. I read an account of a fairly well-known missionary of the 19th century, John Payton. John Payton went to what we call the New Hebrides, the South Seas Islands. He was doing a work of evangelism and trying to bring a Bible for the first time in the language of those South Sea Island people. And like many trying to translate the Bible, he was always struggling for key words and what they were in the native language. And he was struggling over the word faith. What are these people, what will help them understand the concept of faith? And one day he said he was in the village when a man was heard crying out who was about to fall from a high place. And the man was crying out, come so that I might lean heavily against you. That's what his words meant in the native dialect. Come, so I might lean heavily against you. That was one word. And John Payton said, I got it. That's the word for faith. Come to Christ, so that you might lean your entire weight against him. Not a little bit. Not, Jesus, you hold me up 30% and I'll do 70. Come, so I might lean heavily against him. You see, Paul wrote here, I want to be found in him. We're going to go on and see more of this next week. It flows right into next week's concern. But you know, those two words, in him, are significant. If somebody asks me my address, I give them a a number and a street and a town and a zip code, but maybe I should, they say, where do you live, Pastor Rogers? I should say, I live in him. That's where every Christian lives. Paul was saying, I live in Christ. So I might be in jail, they might execute me, I might be broke, I might be sick, it doesn't matter, I rejoice, I drink from a deep, unquenchable stream of joy in God because of the righteousness I have in Jesus, my Lord. John Calvin was another man with a towering intellect and great achievements in 55 years of life, he literally burned out. He did so much. But close to his death, he testified this to a friend who wrote it down. Calvin said, all I have ever done is of no value at all. And I am a poor and miserable wretch with no plea unless I have Christ alone. What am I humanly? Nothing. A wretch. Worthless, a 
A man whose, whose name li- has lived for centuries and will live centuries more for what he accomplished in the kingdom. But the mere man Calvin knew he was a total loss. Yet as a man in Christ, he rejoiced in his eternal hope in that Savior. May you be found doing the same for the glory of God. Amen. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us to see an end to ourselves, to stop tunneling upward, and to reach out and take hold of him by faith who tunneled down to our level. We pray, O oh God, someone today who's desperate, who's been tunneling and tunneling all their life and getting nowhere, would see this and by faith take hold of the righteousness that suffices and brings joy forever. For Jesus' sake, amen.